And if you're staying here, we can open to Second, First uh, Thessalonians two. First Thessalonians two. I listened. Um, I listened to a sermon this week where the preacher made the following statement, and it has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. But just listen to it because it's. I don't know. It, it was a great statement to hear in this week for me. And it says, when Jesus put out his hand in greatest agony, so Jesus reaching out in greatest agony, all he got was air. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet we, when we put out our hand, we find that God is ready to save us. Christ's rejected and forsaken hand should have been ours. But, Christ, but because of Christ was forsaken, ours can be accepted. And so I think that's just a very good thought to start this morning off, just to think about the grace that we have been shown through the love of Jesus Christ. All right, so last week we finished off chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and um, just, just to recap quickly what that chapter was essentially about, it was, to, it was for encouragement to that church, all right, those young believers was to encourage them because they were really trying to be the model Christian church. Also, we see how these followers got saved, then they started following, and then they got involved with the ministries, and this testimony carried far and far and beyond. All right, so we see how these the message moved through them, it became personal, and then it started flowing out from them. And then this also, the fact that these people changed their lives so much because of the message that they heard, this encouraged those who were ministering to them. So it was not just an encouragement to the people in the church, but also to the people who were ministering to those people. And then also we finished off the chapter saying that we need to continue this through a life of active waiting on God. A life of active waiting on God. And that's where we finished in verse 10 um, last week. So let's read... Um, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. It says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but... As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ." We're going to try and get through these verses today. So let's start off in verse 1. It says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Now, the first thing I want to talk about, and this may be a very simple thing. You can take your Bible to Galatians chapter 4. Keep your place in 1 Thessalonians. But the first thing that I just want to show to you, why Paul calls these people brethren. Why does he refer to them in a in a familial term, you know, why, why doesn't he just call them 
saints or something. He calls them brethren. And interestingly, the book of 1 Thessalonians has the most mentions of the word brethren apart from Second, no, apart from 1 Corinthians, which is a much larger book than this one. So Paul is mentioning brethren a lot, so he obviously associates strongly with them. But why do we call each other brethren? Why do I call Pastor Mike or Armand or whoever, why do I call them brothers sometimes? Do you understand? Like, where does that come from? So let's have a look at Galatians 4 verse 5. Galatians 4 verse 5 says, To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has set forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. (laughs) Did I do something? (laughs) Alright, so here we see that we are redeemed from under the law to receive the adoption of sons. In Ephesians 1, it speaks about the adoption to, as children. Okay? So we are adopted by God, so we have the same Father, and therefore we call each other brethren. Have a look at Romans 8. Romans 8. And verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Christ is the first brother, and all of us who follow after, he was the firstborn of, of this, I want to say, line of brothers and line of sisters. And so now all of us follow in this line, and we saw through this adoption that is made possible through Jesus Christ. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And so Christ refers to us as his brethren. We all have the same Father. And that is why as Christians we should... should be comfortable to refer to each other as a brother or a sister in Christ because God is our Father and we should have that care towards one another as um, brothers and sisters, hopefully, maybe not always, should have for each other. And so I, I count this as a, as, a, as a great honor to have this standing with God, to have the standing where Christ as my brother and God as our Father, um, something that we really don't deserve, but we are made accepted in Jesus Christ. We are made accepted in the Beloved, as Paul says in Ephesians. So, just like the fact that you are a son, um, or as being a son, to have fellowship with your father, that requires um, work. But sonship does not require work. Okay? Being a son of a father, being a daughter of a father, does not require any work on your side. The fellowship, the relationship requires work, but not the sonship. So, neither does, so not to become a son, neither to stay one does require work. Okay. If we say we require work to become a son, we even require work to stay a son. 
And so because there's no works involved in this, our sonship is independent of our works. It is purely by grace through faith. All right, let's continue with uh, the verse 1 in First Thessalonians 2. It says, For ourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not vain. It was not vain. Now, this word vain, the most common understanding of it is, and it is legitimately a, the co- most common one, and that is that vain means empty or worthless or having no substance, value or importance. Okay? So it's, it's emptiness. There's, there's no value to this thing. This thing is completely vain. All right? And Paul speaks of this type of vanity um, numerous times throughout the books that he writes. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 5. Um, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says here, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Our labor be for nothing. That's essentially what he's saying here. So that word vain is used in that way as well. But... I think it is used in a different way in this context. Because as we saw in verses 2 to 6, we see what Paul is doing the whole time. He's kind of justifying, he's proving and saying that, guys, I didn't come to you to to boost myself. I didn't come to you to give myself a name. I didn't come to you in pride. I didn't come to you for selfish gain. And that's essentially what he's saying here. So the second way in which the word vain can be used is to say false, Um, deceitful, not genuine, or showy. It's another way in which this word can be used. So Paul, yeah, at the end of this verse, he he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not for a show of man. It was not in falseness. It was in genuineness. And so you can have a look at how this is used in Colossians 2. So probably just a page to the left. Colossians chapter 2. And verse, verse 8, Colossians 2 verse 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So there you see this idea of the, the falseness or the deceit that is spoken of here in connection to vanity. Look down to verse 18 of Colossians 2. It says, Let no man beguile you, um, of your reward in a, volun- in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, in intruding into those things which have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So there you see the, the proud aspect of this vain mind, the proud one, it was for selfish gain. And so I think this is what Paul is speaking about here more than he is speaking about the emptiness as he is speaking out, what he is going to speak about in um, chapter 3. So what Paul is essentially saying is, brothers and sisters, you know that we didn't come pretentiously to make a name for ourselves. That's not why we came. And then he's going to give us a few reasons why he said that. Paul's drive was not to make himself great. But this was obviously an accusation that was made against him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said this at this point. So people in the area, the people who were persecuting them or the people around there after Paul had left, had probably been going around saying, okay, he's trying to make a name for himself. He's just trying to get a group of followers, but not actually caring about the best for you. And so in verses 2 to 6, Paul gives a bunch of proofs or reasons why his coming was not in vain. 
So he says essentially, brothers and sisters, I didn't come to you pretentiously or to make a name for myself. Firstly, because you know I have too little place. Because of our testimony. Okay? In verse 2, he refers to his testimony. Yeah. Then, so that this is the testimony behind his message. Then secondly, in verse 3, he says, because of the content of the message. Okay? Then in verse 4 and 6, he says, the motive for the message. And then in verse 5, he says, the manner of the message. So Paul is saying, we didn't come in vain. If you look at our, the testimony behind our message, if you look at the content of our message, if you look at the motive behind our message, and the manner in which we brought this message, it couldn't have been for selfish gains. It couldn't have been for pride. Because someone who wants to boost themselves does not bring the message with the testimony that we brought. And so let's look a little bit at this testimony behind the message in verse 2. Verse 2 says, But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Have a look at Acts 16. This is what Paul is referring to when he was in Philippi. So Acts chapter 16. He, he points to an event. He points to something that just happened or something that the Thessalonians know about to prove that his testimony says that it was not for vanity. So Acts chapter 16 and verse... We're going to read from verse 20, but what essentially is happening here, there's a woman who has got what they say, the gift of divinity. And so she can, she can um, look into the spiritual world as such and tell people about their future and about their past and tap into these spiritual realms. And um, people were making money by using this woman. Referring to this, they were referred to as her masters. Okay? So now Paul and them have been preaching in Philippi. And this woman starts to follow them. So in verse 20 of Acts chapter 16... Um, let's read from verse 19 it says and when her masters now that's that woman of divinity saw that the hope of their gains was gone they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates saying these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble the city so they saw in verse 19 that their gains were gone they could no longer make money out of this woman because this money this woman had now repented and the evil spirit that she had through which she was doing this divine teachings or whatever has now been taken away, so they can't make money out of her anymore. Verse 21, And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid, hands, uh, and when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in stocks. And so Paul is saying, guys, we just preached this message in Philippi, and this is what happened to us. We were humiliated. We were shamed. We were, our clothes were ripped off of us. We were beaten in public. We were 
imprisoned. We were, all of this happened because of the message that we preach. And so someone who preaches a message to puff themselves up doesn't preach this type of message. But before we, I just want a, a side note, if I could put it like that. I think too many people, or too, too many people, Christianity is tolerable, tolerable as long as it doesn't affect their business, as long as it doesn't affect them personally. Okay? And so these people were fine with, with Paul being there. It says that this woman had followed him many days. He had been in the... He had, no, Philippi doesn't have a synagogue, but he had been in that area for quite some time. And then when he started, when it started affecting their gains, then they were on it. And so the thing is here, too many people, Christianity is tolerable as long as it doesn't affect their business. The world says, just be a moderate Christian and privately serve God. If you don't stop, we'll stop you. And so... The scary thing is, unfortunately, this is the attitude adopted by many Christians, not just people in the world. Many Christians say, Christianity on Sunday, in private, but nowhere else. That's, it's, it's like, I know we say it, but it's kind of incorrect to say it, but we would often say something, my Christian life, my Christian walk. Isn't it just your life, which should be Christ? And then your work and everything that you do is in that sphere of Christ. And that's exactly what it should be. But we, we in our minds, often say, okay, I'm going to do something Christian-ish now, right? And then I'm going to do something worldly. And that's not the way that it should be. Christ should be in and through everything that we do. And so, yeah, like I said, side note, back to the text. In verse 2, um, well, what Paul is, the point, 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 the point Paul is making in is despite our experience at Philippi, we came unto you. Despite that, we came unto you. And if we were pursuing vain desires, do you think we would have come to you after what just happened to us? Because obviously they were pursuing something greater. Something else kept them going. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. What is it? that kept them going? Why did they go even though they were shamed and beaten for it? In um, verse 2 then, in 1 Thessalonians 1, in 1 Thessalonians 2, it speaks there about they were shamefully entreated. Okay, shamefully entreated. Now look at um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Wherefore, Seeing we are, in, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So he's saying, you are going to be wearied and faint in your minds if you do not, the beginning of verse 3, consider him that endured such contradiction 
And how did Christ endure such contradiction? Verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that made him despise the shame. Okay? It made him despise the shame. And this is the very thing that Paul and them were going through. They were shamefully entreated. But they could go through it. Why? Because they considered him which had gone before him. Look at Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1. Peter writes, and I think it's 2 Peter, he, no, it's 1 Peter 2. He writes about um, Christ having suffered, leaving us an example uh, that we should follow in those footsteps. So this suffering is actually something that Paul could have connected to. This is actually praiseworthy to be, or to, to be counted worthy to suffer with Christ, to suffer the shame for His name. 2 Timothy 1. No, what did I say? Yeah, 2 Timothy 1. Verse... 2 Timothy 1, verse 11. It says, 2 Timothy 1, verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So Paul says, I'm appointed to be a preacher. He knew what he was called to do. Okay? So he had confidence in that. And then he goes on to verse 12, where he says, for the which cause I suffer these things, but he says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed because I'm suffering. Then he says, for I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. You can endure the suffering and the shame that the world throws at you for standing up for Christ, if first of all, as we saw in Hebrews, you look to Christ and you see that that's what Christ went through. And second of all, you trust God more than the opinion of man. You have faith in the one who has called you to do what you're doing more than you have the circumstances around you. We often look at the circumstances around us and say, this can't be what God wants us to do because the circumstances are not the way... I would see God have it work. But if you have confidence in what God has called you to do, it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are around you doing what God wants you to do. So the question is, do you suffer shame for the sake of Christ? Do you suffer shame for the sake of Christ? Because if you don't, it could be that you are not bold enough in your faith. Look at what the rest of this verse says, verse um, 2 in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, we were shamefully entreated. We just looked at that shame. And then it says, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. So, it's because of their boldness that they suffered shame. So, if you do not suffer shame, is it perhaps because of a lack of boldness to stand up and speak about your faith in Christ and what He has done for you? Because shame before man accompanies bold faith. Not before all men, but the unsaved man, even sometimes the quote-unquote Christian, it'll, if bold faith will accompany shame. Now, what is boldness? What is boldness? Is it, is it arrogance? Is it proud speech? Is it 
self-confidence? What, what is this boldness that, it's, that the Bible speaks of here? Well, I think in a worldly perspective, if you say, you look at boldness, it, it could be arrogance. It could be an undue self-confidence or unworthy self-confidence or proud speech. I think that, that is bold, but it's the wrong type of bold. So what is biblical boldness? Well, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 2 gives us our first hint. Biblical boldness is, the, foc- or the focus of biblical boldness is God. It says we were bold in our God. Okay. So first of all, biblical's, biblical, <laughs> biblical boldness's focus has to be God. As soon as it's something else, it can't be biblical and it will lead to either arrogance pride or something like that. But if your eyes are fixed on God while you're doing something, it can be bold without being sinful. Okay? So the first thing we see is biblical boldness is God-focused. Then, Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28 and verse 1. It says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. So I, I, pursuing when nothing is chasing you is a guilty conscience. Something is bugging you. Something you know is not right. So I say biblical boldness comes from... Um, a pure conscience. It's conduct or behavior that comes from a pure conscience. You can't boldly serve God if you know you are living in sin and God does not approve of your life. So, secondly, biblical boldness comes from a pure conscience. Thirdly, Acts chapter 13. Just before we move on to this point, we said biblical boldness comes from a pure conscience. In our text in 1 Thessalonians um, 2 verse 5, you may have noticed at the end of that verse, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, Paul calls God to his witness. He says, God is my witness of what I am saying. Now that is someone whose conscience is clear towards God, that he can say, Lord, I know that what I am saying is true. And so that that is boldness to say, I call God. To my witness. What reference did I give you? Acts 13. I should probably also find it. Okay, Acts 13, verse 46. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. Okay, so what happened here is um, Paul and them are, are they're preaching and they're preaching in the synagogue, and so the Gentiles came to listen as well to this, that, this message of the gospel that's being preached. And so the Jews got jealous that they saw that they were Gentiles now who were also included in this, and the Jews were very exclusive, so they didn't like this fact. And so now when Paul and Barnabas, in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it, far, you, you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, 
first of all, this statement in itself is extremely bold. They're standing in a synagogue with a bunch of Jews who are basically at the verge of chasing them out of the city. And um, Paul and Barnabas, it says, they waxed bold and said, it is necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing that you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting lives, we turn to the Gentiles. So they're saying, you know what? We are now going to stand up and we are going to go to the Gentiles because you do not want to hear this gospel of the everlasting life. So second or thirdly, I say, biblical boldness is an exercise of courage or confidence that is based on truth. Based on truth. They knew that what they were saying, they knew that what they were called to, and they saw that these people, these Jews didn't want it. And so the truth of the matter is that we are going to go to the Gentiles. And it is something that they knew God wanted them to do. So biblical boldness is a confidence or a courage based on truth. Not based on opinion, not based on an idea, based on truth. And so we know that the truth is Scripture, right? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. Okay, fourthly, what is biblical boldness? Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 19, Ephesians 6 verse 19, it says, And for me, that utterance... So Paul is asking these people to pray for, for him, and he says, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I might open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that, where, that therein I may speak boldly, as I ought to speak. So, biblical boldness is powered by prayer. Biblical boldness is powered by prayer. You can't expect to boldly stand up for God, first of all, if your focus is not God. Secondly, if you don't do it in a pure conscience, you know your walk with God isn't right. You don't know the truth, so you can't have confidence in the truth. And then also, you haven't prayed and sought God to give you that utterance at the right time to say the right things for Him. And then lastly, boldness in first, uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 14. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So lastly, I say biblical boldness is stimulated by a godly example. Biblical boldness is stimulated by a godly example. If you have someone who is stepping up and going and doing something or standing up for their faith, or it doesn't, it can be some, doesn't even have to be someone necessarily that, that you know, but you see someone um, that you maybe admire, uh, apologist or something, and you see that person, you're like, I want to do what he's doing. I want to have the effect that he's doing, or that he's having for, in the ministry. And so you have an example, you have someone, some, someone that has given up something for Christ and serving Him, that is as an example that can lead to your boldness. And so the five things that we mentioned is that biblical boldness is God-focused. Biblical boldness comes from a pure conscience. Biblical boldness is a confidence in the truth. 
Biblical boldness is powered by prayer, and biblical boldness is stimulated by a godly example. So, do you lack any boldness in sharing of the gospel? Perhaps one of these five things are lacking in your life. Perhaps your focus isn't right. Perhaps you know there's sin in your life. Perhaps you don't know your Bible well enough. Whatever the case is, perhaps you don't pray. Find an example. But having these things, and these are simple things. These are things that it doesn't take a PhD to understand on something. It's really something you just need to decide, I need to apply myself and prayerfully approach it. And God will guide you. This is something, remember, this is God's will for you. He wants, he wants no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so this is something that God will definitely guide you through and help you with. The point is just you need to say, this is what I'm lacking, this is what I need, and I'm going to pursue that, and God will take over. All right, let's get back to our text. Verse 3. Um... I forgot to fill in something. This testimony, so it's, it's, it's depicted by um, boldness. I don't have enough space, but in persecution. Per- persecution. Can you guys read? Yeah, probably not. Only the guys in the front. Okay, but boldness despite persecution. Okay, verse 3. Let's look a bit... We said verse 3 speaks about the content of the message. It says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. This word exhortation is the act of inciting or encouraging to do that which is good. The act of inciting or encouraging to do that which is good. Essentially, Scripture, the Gospel, which is the good news, is good, right? So if they're preaching to say, do this, in other words, re- repent from your sin, turn from idols to serve the living God, that is what they're preaching. They're inciting them to do something that is good. So essentially, their preaching says, their preaching was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Do you see how this lines up with what we said, that vanity or that vain says, this, their message was not one of deceit. It was not one of guile. It was not one of uncleanness. Now, the content of this message, as I said, it is not deceit. Deceit is fraudulent, erroneous doctrine for personal gain. It is personal, it's connected to personal gain. It's like, I'm going to do this so that this person believes that and I get personal gain from it. It is erroneous doctrine. And it also, it's not of uncleanness, which is impure, sinful, or lustful living. Impure, sinful, lustful living. Now, just after Thessalonians, in Acts chapter 17, when when Paul left Thessalonians, he went to Athens. And in Athens, he speaks there about these philosophers that were there. And some of you says Epicureans and Stoics, and he mentions them. And then in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we read about what the Epicureans believe. The Epicureans believe uh, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
So in other words, just live life for your lusts. Just, just, just live it up. Not like Armand preached a while ago, a different type of living it up. Just live it up for sinful pleasures. All right? And that's why this uncleanness is that impure, sinful, and lustful living that the pagan philosophy was of that area. And so he's saying, it wasn't like this. I wasn't trying to fit in with your culture so that you guys would accept me and I would be, I would be able to be a better um, or have a greater following. He says, that's not what I was trying to do. Then he says also, it was not of guile. Guile is cunning craftiness to trick. And so he's essentially saying, I was, I'm not doing any tricks to impress you. I am preaching it as it is. I am not trying to do it in a fancy way that you guys like me or something. I'm preaching it as it is. Now, if it was not of deceit, not of uncleanness, not of guile, what was it of? Well, the message, the opposite of deceit is truth. So the message was of truth. The message was not of uncleanness, but of purity. It was pure. And then, it was not of guile, so it was honest. So Paul is saying, I came preaching truth, purity or holiness, and honesty. This truth is the word of God. This purity, this preaching of purity and holiness is not, is, is not a popular preaching. Ne- not among Christians, never mind among Gentiles, people who don't know God. Preaching of purity is something that is, or holy living is something that is frowned upon even in Christian circles. And then honesty and openness is to tell it like it is, irrespective of the response from the people. Irrespective of the response from the people. And you'll see this exact thought coming in in verse, in verse 4 of um, chapter 2, that it was not to please man. And so he's saying our content of our message was pure. It was truthful. And it was in honesty. So have a look quickly at, um, or I'll read it to you. Philippians 4 verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So I think essentially the message that Paul was preaching to these, these people yeah, in Thessalonica is exactly this. He mentions truth, purity, honesty. This is what he was preaching. And if you want to have a great following, if you want to build up a mega church, you do not preach that. And that is what he was preaching. So it was not vain. It was not for his own personal gain. If I could, if I could ask you, what is the content of your life's message. Okay? We see here's the content of the message Paul is preaching. We see his testimony. Okay? What is the content of your life's message? What do people learn when they read your life? Okay? It's a sobering thought to think about that because Paul speaks about, um, in, in, I'm not sure, I think it's in Corinthians where it speaks about we are, his, uh, we are the epistles written on, our, on his, his heart. We are epistles, we are letters that people can read. People can see what we believe, what we stand for, what we do through our lives. Now, what is the content of the message? 
of your life. If I could, if I could paraphrase this verse 3, Paul is saying, when we came preaching repentance, salvation and service, which is what we saw in chapter 1, um, preaching repentance, salvation and service, we had no ill motives or desires for personal gain. Then verse 4, but to please God. That is what Paul is saying. Our focus was to please God. So let's have a look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, But as we were allowed of God to, um, to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. And then the first part of verse 6 says, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others. Do you see what Paul's motive is? It is not to please men, but to please God. He mentions it here. He says, it's not for the glory of man. We didn't seek the glory of man. We sought the glory of God. We didn't try and please men, but we tried to please God, who tries our hearts. Okay. And that's something we, we often forget, is that God does not look at you and me like we look at each other. God looks at the heart. He looks at our motive behind our deeds. So, the motive of the message. Firstly, I say the motive was from a privileged or thankful position. From a privileged or thankful position. You can see it here in Paul's speech in, in verse 4. It says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. He, said, he counts it a privilege to be allowed of God, to be entrusted by God with this message. I want you to have a look quickly at, at 1 Timothy 1. First Timothy 1, in verse 11, it says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which, has committed, which, God, which was committed to my trust. So there we see that God committing it to his trust, as we saw in, in 1 Thessalonians. Now it says in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me and hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Do you see there that thankfulness of being put into the ministry? God who has committed this message to my trust. It comes from a position of, I am so privileged to have been saved. I am so privileged to have this message of grace, of truth. It comes from that thankfulness and that stems and that, that, that flows out into a life that is the motive that is serving God. So how much of your message stems from this? I'm honored and so thankful to have this message of grace. Freely I have received, freely I will give. How much of your preaching of the gospel stems from that? And then secondly, I would say the motive behind the message is the glorying or glorifying or pleasing of the one who entrusted you. Okay. So it's first of all thankful for him entrusting you and now to glory and praise, please him who entrusted you. So whose glory do you seek when you preach the gospel? Galatians 6 verse 14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, The only thing I glory 
or can glory in is the cross of Christ. The fact that I am saved, the fact that I am alive, the fact that I have what I have, the fact that I have the talents that I have, the fact that it is all Christ. And so I only glory in Him. And so that, the question is, whose glory do you seek when you preach the gospel? Is it pleasing and glorifying God? Like any act of Christian service, witnessing or sharing your faith can quickly become just a man-centered endeavor. It can just become something that you're doing for the sight of men. And that is a dangerous place to be in. Now, let's have a look at 2 Corinthians 10. And we'll look at why does this happen. Second Corinthians um, 10. All right. Now, before we get to this text, I just want to say, the first reason this happens is, is that we forget our primary audience is God. It, is, it says there, I thank God who has entrusted me and who is, it speaks later there in verse 5 of God being my witness. We forget that our primary audience when we preach the gospel is God. Okay? We think of it just being the man to which it's being preached, but actually God is the one who sees it all. And so how does... Hmm, he does not see as man sees. So you know the saying that actions speak louder than words? I would say when it comes to God, your motives speak louder than words. Okay? Your motives speak louder than words. God looks at our motive when we preach. Now, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. It says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Skip down to verse 17. It says, But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. So the one who God commends is someone who is approved. It says we shouldn't glory in ourselves, but we should glory in God. And in verse 12 it says, We dare not make ourselves of the number, which is basically saying one, two, three, four, and then you say, okay, how many, in what position do I rank in this, this, this standing? If I compare myself among the people, among myself, am I first? Am I second? Am I sort of in the middle? Am I at the bottom? Where do I rank spiritually? And he says at the end of this, comparing themselves among themselves, they are not wise. So, the motive of the message, why, why does it happen that this becomes so easily not a God-glorifying but a man-pleasing thing? It's because of comparing. It's because of pride. If it's, Pride starts here and pride says, Okay, now I need to position myself. I need to rank myself. That's what pride does. So you start ranking yourself. You start self-commendation is man-focused. Okay? Ranking and self-commendation is man-focused. And Paul says that's unwise. And as soon as you are man-focused, you will lose the plot and seek to please man. 
As soon as your focus shifts from God to what men see, you've lost the plot. Pleasing man is unbecoming of a servant of God. You may be familiar with this verse in Galatians, Galatians 1 verse 10. Galatians 1 verse 10. It says that, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be a servant of Christ. If I yet pleased men, I should not be a servant of Christ. So, pleasing man is unbecoming of a servant of God. Ask yourself, what is the motive behind my message? Could I have fallen prey to this evil of pleasing man? And it stems from pride. Can you call God to your witness? Can you say, do you realize that your motives speak louder than your words when it comes to God? It's the opposite when we look at man. But nothing is hidden from God. So we're only going to get up to there today. But I want you to see that Paul is saying that my message that I'm preaching is not vain. It's not for my glory. It's not in a false pretense. It's not from pride. It is because from in these proofs or the testimony. Do you see how boldly I am or act regardless of persecution? Do you see the content of my message is not something that scratches the ears of the hearers. It is something that is pure. It's something that expects holiness. It's something that's truthful and honest. And then also the motive of the message is one that says, I'm so thankful, I'm so privileged to have this position. And I will please God. I will glorify Him because of what He has done for me, not because of my own greatness or anything. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this message, Lord. It, um, it really shakes at our foundations, Lord, if we have an, an open heart to hear from you. It has the ability to shake and to truly make us test ourselves and say, Lord, why am I doing what I am doing? It's so easy to become, become man-focused and prideful and compare ourselves. And, but Father, ultimately, at the end of the day, we don't stand before each other. We stand before you. Lord, give us, renew our minds to think on you and to, to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And to know that our, the fact that we are sustained every day is your grace. Thank you, Father, for this, for this privilege. And I ask that you would please help us to apply this in our daily lives. Help us to boldly speak your truth because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.